Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Conversations on Voice, Speech, and Identity with me, Ryan O'Shea. Each episode, or most episodes, I am talking with a guest who has a genuine question about their voice, speech, or identity, and then I walk them through concepts and exercises to help them and you with their question. In this episode, we're doing things a little bit differently. I am doing a mailbag style episode where some listeners wrote in specific questions that you have about your voice, speech, or presence, and I'm going to answer a few of those on the air. And because I don't like talking to myself, I invited my boyfriend Cameron to join me. Hey, guys. Remember me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's not all guys that are listening, FYI. Yes. Hey, everyone. (laughs) Remember me? Great. So Cameron is going to be, one, reading the questions uh, to me, two, being the person that I can actually talk to while I'm answering these questions rather than me talking to myself or to a microphone. And three, he's also going to be that voice that's going, wait, what does that mean? Can you clarify that? That sort of thing, just in case I get too wrapped up in my own uh, assumptions that everybody's on the same wavelength. So with that being said... Should we start it off? Let's do it. Okay. Um, This first question comes from our friend Eric, who asks... Aside from the ums, ahs, etc., what are the most common cringeworthy tics, either physical or vocal, that can detract from a message? And then he adds, this is BuzzFeed clickbait worthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're definitely going to put this in the the headline of this episode so that everybody clicks on it. Like and subscribe. (laughs) First, to answer his actual question... I'm not somebody that tends to obsess or have pet peeves about people when they're speaking. However, for me, the the most cringy sort of versions of public speaking that I see are when people have really clearly rehearsed something. Mm. And by that, I mean they've rehearsed it with a sense of, trying to sound a particular way. In other words, when I feel like that person has disconnected from their authenticity, when they've disconnected from why they're speaking about something, that tends to be a moment where, at least in a public speaking context, I tend to check out and not be as interested in what they have to say. But to further uh, his question, I also don't think that ums and ahs or us rather, are that terrible. Like we all do them. We all consistently say them. There's sometimes called hesitation sounds, thinking sounds. Mm -hmm. The only reason why it might be something for folks to be aware of is because the um or the uh, uh is typically a moment where we're stalling is one possibility or we're trying to think of the next thing that we want to say. So we're uh, speaking on that while waiting for the next thought to come to us. Right. I don't think that's problematic, except that it's really hard to think if you're not also breathing. Mm. And if I am 
spending my energy on sounding and I'm releasing breath there, that might make it more difficult for me to come up with what my next thought is. So rather than saying like, never do um or uh ever again, I think if you recognize that you are consistently doing that in your speaking, it's worth getting curious about what's happening in those moments that you're doing it. And can you find something else that might be more useful to deal with that? So if you are um and uhing because it's a moment where you don't know what to say next, mm-hmm. see what it's like to pause and breathe to come up with the next thought. Because also those pauses are often like the most compelling moments yeah. of speeches. It's like in jazz, the notes you don't play. Ooh, yeah, I like <laughs> that. Exactly. Okay. Do do you feel like that satisfies? I think yeah, I think it satisfies or answers the question. Great. So the next question comes from Tim. He asks, "Why is accent work easy for some by ear and easier for others using IPA or another visual learning tool?" Great, and let's pause right there. Okay. IPA stands for the International Phonetic Alphabet. Are you familiar with IPA, Kim? Only because I know you. <laughs> Great. What do you know about IPA? I, as far as I know, it's essentially like what musical notation is for music, where it's an it's a universal symbols for each like sound that you can make. So it's not letters, but it's like every sound has a letter. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. I might describe it as every speech sound that exists, whether it's a consonant or a vowel, is actually something that you're physically doing. Mm -hmm. And the the International Phonetic Alphabet is a series of symbols, but each symbol represents one physical action. Gotcha. So it's really useful... For uh, an accent coach, for example, because if I need to notate what I hear in an accent, then it's much more useful for me to have a code, to have a shorthand of here are the different physical gestures that I'm hearing. And when I see that code, it still translates to me as a gesture itself. So... I don't think that every person that wants to do accents must learn the entirety of the International Phonetic Alphabet, but I do tend to at least cover some very basics Mm -hmm. of the alphabet for folks whenever I'm first teaching them any new accent. Yeah. Um, so, So Tim's question is really, that first question was, How is it that some people seem to pretty effortlessly figure out accents? Yeah. They can figure it out by ear where other people might need that code of the International Phonetic Alphabet or some other type of structure in order to find it. Well, like, and I know like for obviously not in accents, but just in general, I am like a visual learning. Like if I hear someone's name, I'm like, okay, I think I got it. But if I see someone's name written down, I'm like, okay, I'm never going to forget that person's name. Oh, interesting. So is it similar to that, like like almost learning styles? It could or? be. It could be for sure. And I, it's, it's definitely related to learning styles, though I think that everybody would benefit from a little bit of all of it. Like I can't mm-hmm. 
just give you a phonetic breakdown of an accent. Yeah. It's not going to matter if I'm not hearing it in relation to the sounds. Right. You used the example uh, yesterday when we were talking that it's like a musician. Yeah. That yeah. some people can hear a song and figure out how to play it on the guitar or whatever their instrument of choice is by ear, just by listening mm -hmm. to it. And those people, I would say, are probably the the rarity, yeah. the, the exception, where most people more than likely are going to uh, uh, thinking <laughs> sound. Callback. Yeah. Most people are going to need the music, are going to need the structure, right. the code of that music in order to replicate that song. Yeah. Or at the very least, I think that it's going to get you there faster. Right. Okay. So that's dealing with the first part of his question. What's the rest of his question? The rest of his question is, are there groups of accents that are easier for people based on regions? For example, he says, I'm good at Irish and British, but Australian is the hardest thing he's ever had to do. Is that usual for other people or is it specific to each person? Great. So then his second question, I'm just playing it back to make sure I understand it. His second question are is, are there some accents or regions that are just easier for some people than others? Mm -hmm. So the quick answer is, yeah, probably. Like, mm -hmm. for example, it is easier for someone who has grown up speaking English to do another English speaking accent. Right. It's easier for me to do a Southern American accent because I grew up 10 minutes from Kentucky. Right. Right. Versus uh, somebody from the UK might have a harder time doing that version. Or even better example, somebody from France will very likely have a hard time doing that accent because they are used to speaking French. Yeah. So speaking a different language is already a barrier. Well, I shouldn't say barrier. Speaking a different language is already one challenge. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the additional challenge of speaking the language in one particular accent. Yeah. Well, and in the in the past, you've like talked to me about how different accents have like different postures. Oh, babe, I'm getting there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so on. the yes. So the <laughs> other the other thing that I think is really relevant to someone like Tim, who is going, I can do an Irish. I can do many iterations of British accents, uh, and I'm speaking really broadly, which is not. Great, because there's not any one Irish accent or one British mm -hmm. accent. There's many that exist, right? But to that point, for someone like Tim that has done many accents from that region, but goes, but woof, for some reason, this Australian accent, which feels pretty similar, is so hard. Why is that? I think that's where having a, an accent coach or at least an understanding on what the all of the elements of accent work are is really helpful mm -hmm. for being able to decode any accent. Right. So in Knight Thompson speech work, which is the speech and accent work that I teach and that I learned myself as a student, they break accents down into four areas. So the first area is people or cultural context. Who are the people who speak this accent? Super important step, especially as actors, 
for, you know, if we're going to be taking on the humanity of right. a particular person, including their accent, I ought to know a little bit about that place. Yeah. Fair enough. And a lot of that's just like acting, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. But I think that even, uh, even as almost like a cultural anthropologist, it's really important to, to understand the place that you're, that you're analyzing, that you mm-hmm. want to sound like, right? The next area of the analysis is posture. Posture. Right? Yay. Yay. <laughs> so every accent, your accent, my accent, because we all have accents. If you've ever said, I don't really have an accent or that person doesn't really have an accent. I'm sorry, you're wrong. We all have an accent. It just might be that there is one, there are a lot of features that tend to show up in a lot of yeah. American accents. So we go, oh, well, we as a as an American people don't have an accent, but those people do. Yeah, I remember growing up, everyone always said people from Kansas City don't have accents. False. They have yeah. a Kansas City accent. <laughs> yeah, and you pointed it out to me. <laughs> yes, we <laughs> all have accents. That's a good thing. Yeah. For sure. So you, as a, a person from Kansas City originally, who has lived in California for however many years at this point... You have a particular posture, a way that you use your jaw, your lips, your tongue, your soft palate, your pharynx or your throat. There's particular ways in which you are shifting where those postures, where those articulators really are moved, which then changes the shape of your vocal tract, mm-hmm. which then changes the sound or the acoustics right. of your vocal tract, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way that if we talk about posture for the body, if I'm sitting upright, bracing myself in place, I'm going to move a little bit differently than if I'm slunching down forward. It's not qualifying anything as good or bad. It's just going, we all have it, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing what the posture is relative to your own. So knowing what the posture of a different accent is relative to your own accent is often the thing that helps you just click into place with that new accent. And that's where I think the people that just have a good ear, I think what's more likely is that they have a good physical sense of what's happening. Mm. They might not necessarily think of it in that way, but that there's probably some sort of structural shift yeah. that they're making to their own vocal tract that's helping those sounds fall into place. Yeah. I'd bet money on that. Right. Yeah. If it's if it's helpful, like in the past before you've done like just examples of postures, like like one example, like a southern posture, like some other posture. Is you're that s- you're such a good co-host. <laughs> Look at you. Yep. Yeah. So maybe I'll talk about my the posture, my my oral posture as I feel it right now, relative to other yeah. postures that tend to show up. So my jaw is pretty relaxed, mm-hmm. meaning it's not particularly close. Like there's not like my teeth aren't touching. Uh, it's also not super open. Uh, so my, my jaw is pretty relaxed. My lips are also pretty relaxed, meaning I'm not advancing my lip corners forward the way some maybe like New Yorkers might. Mm. Um, I'm not retracting my lip corners back uh, the way uh, I'm doing like a Scottish accent right now. And there's a little bit of lip corner retraction that happens there. So 
most accents will have uh, something relative that happens right. in their lips, right? There's also pursing. So when I bring my lips together, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. If we're talking about the standard British accent, there's lip corner advancement and some pursing that happens. So just by making this shift, for example, I'm bringing my lip corners forward and I'm pursing my lips. This is, I'm not changing anything about my pronunciation, but you can hear that there's a difference, right? Yeah. I haven't changed anything with my tongue. I haven't changed anything with my soft palate or my throat. But those are also areas that I could right. shift. So, and and I think the other important thing to note, I don't love the word posture for body because it tends to make people overcorrect. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, good posture is I have to be upright. And yeah, then they okay. actually end up so bracing. Good. Yeah. The same thing is true for your articulation. There are... Probably no postures that exist where you find the placement and you freeze it there. Yeah. If I do that, then that's going to make my articulation really right. difficult, right? It has to be mobile, right? Yeah. And and some postures are, are more mobile than others. Say right. Mobile. Like mobile. Like a British wow. person. Yeah, how fancy. <laughs> <laughs> Mobile. Yeah. <laughs> like a crayon? <laughs> yes. Crayon? Crayon. Crayon. Yes. There okay. we go. I did say crown until I was like five. And this is a good, like, it should have been a clue that I was born to be a speech teacher because I remember my mom talking to another teacher of like, there's so many kids that say crown. Isn't that funny? And I just clocked that as like, it's not crown, it's crayon. <laughs> and I made a choice then at like age five that I would correct my speech. Yeah. Or, you know, I was a little nerd you've always liked being right yeah but as an adult what i would say to five-year-old ryan is you know what people know what you mean when you say crown (laughs) so if you want to keep saying crown you keep saying crown ain't no problem right right but adult ryan says crayon (laughs) yeah uh the next area i'm going to go through this a little bit more quickly prosody or musicality of an accent what's how do they stress their keywords do they do it with uh, a change in pitch? Do they do it with a change in volume? Are all of the syllables uh, pretty equally timed? Mm-hmm. This is uh, like if you listen to a French speaker, they tend to have every syllable about the same. Spanish is similar. Um, there are languages all over the world that are syllable mm-hmm. timed, meaning every syllable is approximately the same value, mm. where English is a stress-timed language. That there are the syllables that are the the stressed syllable have just a little bit more weight. Yeah. Right? I so if that. I figure out the musicality of an accent, that is going to go a long way to helping me find what the specifics are. And then the final area is the one that most people tend to go straight for, pronunciation. Mm. Pronunciation is a totally important piece of it, but... If I can find the posture first, a lot of the pronunciation is going to like fall right into place. Yeah, It's super cool. Makes sense. Yeah. So for Tim, for example, I would recommend if you're finding that you're, you've done the breakdown of an Australian accent, for example, you're finding it initially, but then you fall out of it and fall into British or something like that. More than likely, that's a postural thing. So figure out in those moments when you, ooh, it clicks in. See if you can close your eyes, 
exhale, and feel what it is you think is shifting. Mm. You can also look at videos of actual speakers and see what's happening, but it's tough to see what's happening in the yeah, mouth. Yeah, that feels... It's difficult, but but sometimes you can, sometimes you can. But I think if you feel like, yeah, I have landed on that sound, I can feel what have I shifted in my vocal tract that's helped me land on this sound. And if you can get to that and probably the prosodies, the other piece that you might not be considering, if you can find those pieces, I bet you'll be able to find how to distinctly do any accent. Gotcha. That does makes that, sense. Does, yeah. Does that satisfy you? <laughs> yes. Great. Answer achieved. Great. Problem solved. <laughs> you want to do David's question next? Cool. So can you give some context for, for who David is and that'll help she, with the question? What a co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So David is a friend of mine. Uh, we went to grad school together like oh, 2010 through 2012. So it's it's been a minute since we we work together. David is a really brilliant person, wonderful actor, particularly skilled in Shakespeare and a really great teacher of Shakespeare. Which leads us to this yes. question. <laughs> so David says, I've had a lot of young Shakespeare focused actors get themselves caught in quote Shakespeare voice over the years. A sort of partial slip into something similar to RP quickly define what rp is <laughs> rp is received pronunciation that's the the more technical term for the standard british accent gotcha so a sort of partial slip into something like rp and the inability to let their pitch or tone flow freely i think part of it may come from a focus on meter part from some association with the shakespeare voice and probably some tension or nerves what are some signs the actor can be aware of to make sure they're not working too hard. Are there exercises or specific warm-ups you'd recommend uh, to ease out of this particular matrix of not quite serving you uses? It's a good question. It really is. <laughs> I I think first my instinct is that I might want to give a little bit more context around what meter yeah. means. Meter is really directly related to prosody, the musicality that I was talking about. Right exist in any accent the meter that exists in shakespeare and ooh, i'm feeling nervous right now that i am going to say the wrong thing because i am not a shakespeare scholar or even somebody that uh, performs shakespeare Mm. very often but i understand enough iambic pentameter is the the meter that most of shakespeare's text is written in and generally Every line of text is 10 syllables and those those syllables are broken into five. So pentameter, right? And iams, iams, I believe describes how the, the words are stressed. So in generally speaking, a line from Shakespeare goes unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. To be or not to be, that is the question. To be or not to be, that is the question. There's actually an extra little uh, syllable on there. 
I'm not going to get into that mm -hmm. because I can't speak very intelligently about that. But generally speaking, knowing the meter is really useful because mm -hmm. it's giving the actor some clues about where the stressed syllables are, where the keywords are. I think it also helps paint the picture in a clearer way. So it is totally an important step. Yeah. Where I think a lot of actors maybe get hung up on this, and the same thing is true if we're talking about more contemporary text, if they're focused on how they think they should sound. Yeah. So that RP sort of sound, that Shakespeare sort of voice that we hear really frequently. Yeah. For me, what I'm guessing is that the the simple answer is that that actor is really orienting to how they think that character should sound. Right. That character should stress their rhythm this way. That character should have this particular voice because if they don't have this particular voice, then they won't fit in that world. They won't be taken seriously. They won't have the prestige of right. that world, right? If I am focused on how I sound, then it's not very likely that I'm going to be focused on why it is that I'm speaking. Mm -hmm. In other words, the energy that I'm using to, to be correct is energy that I could be using to affect my partner right. or to be affected. So, or not be affected. That is the question. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Thank you. Make sure to tip your waitresses. <laughs> Boo. I hate that. <laughs> I hate, love that. Yes. So, what I recommend for, for, actors who are exploring Shakespeare or really exploring any sort of text, we tend to think of the beginning parts of our process in a vacuum, or I find a lot of actors do. So in other words, they put their memorizing the lines in one place. Uh, they put their script analysis that's another thing that they do. They do maybe some physical work in one place. They do their accent work in another place. And they're all existing as these separate yeah. things, right? So then when the actor goes to perform it, of course, they're all sorts of discombobulated because they haven't been working to combine mm -hmm. those efforts. So what I recommend doing, especially if, if the text you're exploring is something really technical that could potentially make you more nervous, overpower you because you're worried about sounding foolish or something like that, what I recommend doing is from the beginning, every part of your process, consider it in the context of your character. Like, why would your character speak in this particular musicality? Mm. What is it about speaking in this meter that helps you get what you want? Mm -hmm. So if I'm breaking it down in that way, in the same way that I could, if I were preparing for a really intense conversation with someone, I practice that at home, right? So in other words, humans do this all the time. Mm -hmm. We prepare, we practice for the type of communication that we want to do. Do the same thing as your character. Then do the same thing with when I'm trying to memorize lines. 
I'm memorizing as the character. I'm preparing what it is that I want to say to this person in my life, right? Mm -hmm. Because then again, it's not this separate disconnected thing. It's something that is really coming from me in a very holistic way. Then I think the other possibility, I th- especially if if an actor is feeling super rigid mm-hmm. in their performance, rigid in either constraining themselves to a particular voice or constraining themselves to meter, just do something to make it fun. So do something. Uh, I'm I'm totally borrowing this from the teacher certification that I'm doing right now. It's a bunch of voice and speech teachers uh, in the Knight Thompson speech work certification. And we're doing our own acting and getting some coaching. And one of the really effective tools is sometimes like just do it in a different accent. Mm. There's something about throwing you off your game just a little bit that you can no longer plan you can no longer be so focused on the meter you can no longer be so focused on how you sound because there's too many things going on so in other words sometimes a little bit of chaos yeah is really nice for shaking you out of your patterns and the other thing that i would say is like just see really good examples of Shakespeare, really good contemporary examples of Shakespeare see Shakespeare that is starring people of color. See Shakespeare that is happening in a contemporary time period. Mm-hmm. And and I understand that maybe it's it's a little bit privileged to say, yeah, just see more theater, right? <laughs> yeah. But you can find clips online of I think it's the the public theater in New York. Ooh, I know I don't doubt this. I'll put this in the notes. But they just did a production that I saw a clip online of, and I, oh, I'm again, I hate myself right now. I cannot remember the name of the actress, but she, she's one of the stars of Orange is the New Black. She does a stellar, gorgeous job. I can't even remember the show that it's from. So this is just like a, and then I found $5 story, <laughs> but I will put it in the show links. And it's a really great example of somebody who is speaking in what feels like it's such a contemporary way that yeah. I think you could almost be tricked into thinking like, did they rewrite this? Yeah. But totally Shakespeare's words. Right. And I understand everything that she's saying. Yeah. And it's really exciting to see productions like that. When I see productions that are only Shakespeare voice, yeah, I can handle that for a little bit, but my brain starts to tune it out at a certain totally. point. Totally. So you're also feels like it's all dressing. Yeah. Not, yeah. Oh yeah. So you're doing your audience a disservice as yeah. well if you're only speaking in that way. So the synthesized version is don't do anything in a vacuum. If you're working on meter, if you're working on your voice, if you're working on your movement, your script analysis, all of that, do it as your character. Be including that in your process from the beginning. Remember that your voice is a side effect of how you're being affected. It's not the thing that you want to go straight for, I think, most of the time. Yeah. Use your voice, in other words, rather than altering your voice to how you think you should sound. sound like, yeah. Yeah, in most cases, especially if that voice is some very formal sounding rigid thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And see more Shakespeare, see more examples of Shakespeare that gets you excited. Yeah. Not that 
seems like it is correct, and therefore that must be the model that I must go by. Right. You know mm-hmm. how, like, have you ever seen those things where they do, like, composites of, like, a thousand faces, and, like, this is what one, like, one face that's a composite of, like, a thousand faces mm. or something like that, and they always yeah. look, like, not human. Mm. It feels like people, when people try to do Shakespeare, they try to do the middle average of everyone that's ever done Shakespeare, and it just becomes, feels very, like, it looks sort of like those faces where it's like just kind of boring and not interesting and not human. Yeah. I don't know. That just popped in my head. No, I like that. I like that. Yeah. I think ultimately I want to have, I'm realizing a guest on that is somebody who really loves Shakespeare and teaches Shakespeare regularly, because I think I would love to hear from someone about that. But uh, yeah, ultimately I think, whether we're talking about Shakespeare or a contemporary film. Yeah. I should be as interested and as moved by that piece, whether it was written 400, 500 years ago, 600 years ago, 1400s, (laughs) or if it was written like this year, Mm -hmm. just because something is from an antique time doesn't mean that it needs to feel irrelevant. And in fact, if it feels irrelevant, then why do I care? Right. You know? Yeah. Let's do one more question. And it's, I like your question. One more. So my question? Yeah. Oh boy. All right. Well, I still have to read this because I forgot what I said. (laughs) Um, Oh yeah. Okay. So I'll phrase it in my own words, but you know how when you see something really beautiful, like a beautiful landscape like or you or yeah. something that just like is amazing, people always say, you know, the, oh, that took my breath away. And that always felt weird to me because something – I'm thinking of this question in landscapes and not in Ryan's. But <laughs> like you see it and it should it should be like a very pleasant sensation. But it feels like the taking your breath away almost feels like it should be. It's like scary, but it's the opposite. It's comforting and happy. Yeah, I agree. I think the my experience of something taking my breath away is more that it it changed my breath. Mm. Oh, I felt affected right. by it. Right. So the the taking my breath away, I think, is more of it's a little bit of that. Kind of surprise breath. Yeah, it, yeah, it feels rhythm. like maybe the person that coined that term that it did feel to them of that little gasp, that little surprise breath it does feel like something is being yeah pulled in or pulled out of that's, you. And that's different than like what would happen if something threatening happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think in in and in both circumstances, what we're really talking about is you being affected by that mm. particular thing. The beautiful landscape. Oh, oh, it's so beautiful that you could think of it really technically of your nervous system is changing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly what I was wondering. Right? Or even just in in, in acting terms, it's you're being affected. Yeah. And it's a really good thing for your breath to be affected. Right. It makes you human. And frankly, the reason why I work with a lot of actors or the reason why a lot of actors come to me, it's often because their acting coach or their manager or somebody that is some sort of mentor to them said, you really need voice classes. Mm -hmm. And they go, I speak fine. Like my voice is fine. And they don't understand why they need voice in particular. Where really the issue that we end up working on is more 
breath, mm-hmm. that their body is probably rigid, held in certain ways, whether it's habitual of this is how I've I've sucked my stomach in for 20 years now. So releasing that, no way, right? Or a version of maybe protection. Tension, regardless of mm-hmm. the context, is a version of like, it serves you mm-hmm. in some way. It has served you, yeah? But if my body is too tense, too held, too armored, then it's much more difficult for my breath to be affected mm. by things, by other people by beliefs in the circumstances as an actor. Right. So a lot of the work that I do with actors is helping their bodies soften, release a little bit more so that they can be more affected. So that they can have that sensation of their breath being taken away. Taking the sights a little bit more. and Yeah. 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 Cool. Are you satisfied? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Great. <laughs> Did that take your breath away? In a different way. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I think that this is a good segue. We have a few more questions, but oh, if I try to answer all of them, we'll be here all yeah. night. Be sure to check out voiceandspeechwithryan.com slash podcast to find show notes and links where you can find more information on the topics we discussed, including those things that I could not remember. Um, I will be more specific with the really unclear references that I shared (laughs) in the show so that you can look those up for yourself. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with someone. You can send a link. You can tag them in a post on Instagram or Facebook or just talk to people. That's a possibility as well. I don't know why I wanted to do this accent, but I did. <laughs> so it feels a little gossipy. Like you're like gossiping yes, a little bit. Tell, like, spread yeah. the news. <laughs> yeah. Spread the news. Do it. And if you have a particular thought or question you want to share with me, or if you want your question to be answered in a future mailbag episode, you can contact me at voiceandspeechwithryan.com. Until next time, bye. Bye.